If the stories here interest you, consider joining a Substack blog. It is free and has interesting stories that complement the stories that we narrate on the podcast. You can find us at talkingofgiants.substack.com. That is talkingofgiants.substack.com. No man ought to be condemned to live in a place where a rose cannot grow. It was the early 19th century. The Industrial Revolution had made some cities of England extremely concentrated. Cities were teeming with factories and people. New enterprises rose and fell like the waves that encased the industrial nation on all sides. People who worked in factories lived in conditions akin to slavery and had little say in the kind of environments they worked in or the type of work they had to take up. Kids would take up risky and laborious work and would live with their parents in cramped apartments. So was the case with Birmingham, a city in the West Midlands of England. For a time when businesses came up and grew to great heights on hugely unfounded claims, Birmingham was no exception. Enterprising individuals sold all kinds of consumable products, claiming all different kinds of uh, health benefits. If they were sharp enough, given the concentration of population, they needed only a minor percentage to bite into their claims. That would be enough to set them sailing on their new path of entrepreneurship. In a time like this, when it little mattered what you put into the food that you sold and even littler how you treated your workers, a man said, this. No man ought to be condemned to live in a place where a rose cannot grow. A rose. <laughs> a rose. Welcome to Talking of Giants, a podcast that explores the stories of giants of various fields. Today, we go to the crowded and murky streets of 19th century Birmingham and talk about foods that come from a tree rightly called the food of the gods, Theobroma cacao. Tying this all together is the tale of the Cadbury family and the tasty delight of an iconic company that they built, Cadbury. Cadbury is no more an independent company and is owned by Mondelez International. But the brand it built and the loyalty it commands stand as strong as ever. 1831 John Cadbury had a small shop that dealt in tea and coffee. Nothing fancy, a mere retailer that resold tea and coffee to the many people of Birmingham. He had a small business on the side that sold cocoa products. This, at the time, was not really meant for the layman. Cocoa products, like powder that could be mixed in water and consumed, were beloved but were reserved for the richer parts of the population. This is greatly due to a heavy tariff that was then levied on the import of cacao, from which cocoa products were made. John Cadbury was a great retailer. He was a showman. He purchased Birmingham's first plate glass window 
for his shop's display. He also had a man of ethnic Chinese origin serving behind the counter as an attraction. For the population of the time, that must have seemed like a great thing to come and see. Mildly racist, but then it was the 1800s, guys. People had much worse things to worry about. John Cadbury realized soon enough that if he had to make a difference to his career, he did not just have to be a seller, but a manufacturer. And why would he not think so? It was Birmingham in the 1800s. Every street and corner was full of factories and manufacturing units. John Cadbury was already selling his own products apart from selling products from reputed companies like the Fry's. He would use a mortar and pestle to create products in his own shop. A stroke of luck would slap John Cadbury in the face in the year 1832. The government slashed import duties on cocoa. Overnight, cocoa went from being a luxury for the rich to being within reach of the middle class wage earners. But the best part of the equation was not just the luck, it was the preparation. John Cadbury already had significant amounts of production going, which put him way ahead of many others in grabbing the once-in-a-generation opportunity of taking cocoa to every household. Great things happened to the Cadbury's business in the years to come. The national market for cocoa grew five times in the next eight years and Cadbury reaped benefits. The quality of his product, though not great in market share at this point, earned him a royal warrant from Queen Victoria in 1854. A few years later, in 1861, he decided to hand over the reins to his sons. Richard and George, John Cadbury's sons, should have had a great time running the business. What was not to desire? I mean, a quality product, rising national consumption in the category, a royal warrant from Queen Victoria. What could go wrong? A lot, it turns out. Fry's was an established company in the cocoa business at the time. Consumers knew that product. Even more, they trusted it. That sales channels in cities across the country. Cadbury did launch into London at one point, only to realize that the Fry sales channel in London was more mature and much better equipped than the Cadbury one. It was like a minnow fighting a monstrous octopus. Cadbury was also plagued by attrition in payments from retailers. Many retailers went bust and would leave Cadbury stranded with no money coming in. So when John Cadbury did hand the reins over to Richard and George, it wasn't exactly the key to paradise that they were receiving. The only lifeboat on the sinking titanic of a project would actually come to the brothers from their mother. The passing of John Cadbury's wife left behind a considerable legacy for the Cadbury brothers. It might have been a good chunk of cash if not for the two horrible years of sales that followed. So, even with the inheritance that the brothers received, 
they were asset rich but cash poor. They started cutting down their own personal expenditures vastly and thrived on the smallest possible amounts. Things got so bad that a great part of their revenue, almost three-fourths, started coming from tea and coffee sales, which they were not experts in. It was not a sustainable way. They had to improve their cocoa product or they would definitely go under. Now, here's the fabulous part. Improving your product at that time was not that mean a feat. It was quite simple actually. Well, for our times it is simple, but for theirs, here's the thing. Cocoa powder at the time was not very soluble. So to make it soluble and also to make it way cheaper to produce, manufacturers had a way of putting whatever they found into the mix. I might not be very far from the truth when I say whatever they found because here are some of the things they put into the mix. The finer things that were added were things like potato flour, sago and treacle which is a dark sticky syrup type of thing made from semi-refined sugar. The other relatively common additions were red lead and even brick dust. Brick dust. So, you can see what I mean when I say that it was not that hard to improve quality. Even Cadbury's cocoa powder was not very far from these practices. So was Fry's. Richard and George wanted to be better. Better than the common norm. But if they just put in more cocoa powder in the mix, it would create a product that not only did not mix well into the water, but also gave the consumer digestive trouble. The brothers soon realized that the answer lay on the other side of the sea in Europe. Van Houtens. Van Houtens was a famous European cocoa brand. Conrad Johannes Van Houten had experimented with many methods. He had not been satisfied with the method of skimming and adding fillers to make the cocoa product more soluble in the water. By leveraging the spirit of the industrial revolution and the new machines that were being built, he created his own machine. It was a hydraulic press that reduced fat content in cocoa from 53% to around 27%. George Cadbury knew this was it. He traveled to Holland. He had his luggage, an idea and a dictionary. With just sign language and the use of a dictionary, George Cadbury negotiated a deal for the Van Houten hydraulic press. Back in England, however, there was a tougher decision to make. The hydraulic press had been purchased. It was understood by everyone that it cost a significant amount of money and if it did not go well, it would have eaten up a huge chunk of the remaining Cadbury capital and would have given them nothing in return. The more pressing problem was, what are they going to promote this new product as? If they talked about how it was a purer version, won't they just be cannibalizing their own sales? Because they themselves had a different line that was not quote-unquote of 
the purest quality. What if this just served as an ugly reminder to people that Cadbury had just been selling Sapa product till that point? Despite all these doubts in their minds, the brothers went ahead. With the showmanship that they had inherited from their father, they knew what their best selling point was going to be. They chose a slogan. The slogan, absolutely pure, therefore best. Look at that. Simple and to the point. They did not try to sell it like some godsend that was just better. They said that it was absolutely pure and therefore it was the best. It created a new demand for cocoa that was soluble and was also healthier. The campaign was a success. They also brought in medical men who supported the claim that Cadbury's cocoa essence was good for health. But this was in keeping with the times. Almost no product that was categorized as food was advertised without claiming some outsized benefit of health. People sold dubious things in the name of health during those times. Cadbury's was only selling the caveman ancestor of Bonvita. So I guess we're good. Whatever be the mix of reasons for the success, the sales took off. With the passage of time, the Adulterated Goods Act of the government made some provisions. These provisions called out the adulteration of cocoa and because of this, all the other brands were forced to drop their subpar products. This meant that they also had to take up quality production like Cadbury. But by that time, Cadbury was way ahead of everyone else. As the empire grew, George and Richard took a good look at the places they produced their products in. Birmingham and most of industrial England actually was not a great sight to behold at the time. Sure, it was the pinnacle of enterprising spirit, but it came at the cost of eating up towns and turning them into dirty, dusty and overcrowded places. Once their business outgrew their factory in Birmingham, the brothers had to look to expand. Most companies would have taken up quarters in the murky neighborhoods because they provided cheap labor and cut transportation costs. Cadbury brothers, however, had a different idea. They understood that merely treating employees like slaves did not always result in the best productivity. People under those systems had little incentive to contribute to the growth of the enterprise that treated them like animals. Cadbury brothers wanted to build something better, something a lot more human. Richard Cadbury conducted extensive prospecting for this in person. He would walk along the railway lines emanating from Birmingham on the weekends. This was because it was important to find a site that had access to transportation, especially railways. About four miles outside of Birmingham, in a rural area near Stirkley, Kings Norton and Selly Oak, Richard Cadbury found a greenfield site that would become their new home. It was a 14-acre plot. 
It had a meadow and a stream, the Bon. They named the factory that they were building after the stream and called it Bonville. The workers arrived after the construction took place. They had not seen anything quite like Bonville before. That is because nothing like Bonville existed in the country. With quarters for management and workers, gardens and huge spaces set aside for recreation and sports, Bonville was in a league of its own. It even had swimming pools and encouraged all employees to become good swimmers. Heated dressing rooms, prayer meetings and subsidized railway transport fares were just few of the benefits given to the employees. Employees also were given free classes during paid company working hours. It was, to quote the company's own words for it, a factory in a garden. It however was much more than a garden. It was a wage earner's doorway into a new life. It was George Cadbury who said the words, no man ought to be condemned to live in a place where a rose cannot grow. With the start of Bonville, he started turning those words into reality one brick at a time. The story of the Cadbury brand continues in the next episode. They still had a long journey ahead after conquering Birmingham. The path was dark and twisted before they became the global sweetheart they are now. That story next week. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It means a lot to us that you follow our work. There are a couple of ways you could support the podcast. One, you can support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash talking of giants. That is buymeacoffee.com slash talking of giants. The second method is by sharing the podcast with someone you know who would appreciate the work that we do and would be interested in the stories that we tell. Thank you so much. Keep listening. I'll see you next time. Talking of Giants is a podcast hosted by Vikhyat Mutyala. The theme soundtrack was composed by Bertie Ashley. You can reach me Vikhyat Mutyala at talkingofgiants at gmail.com. That is talkingofgiants at gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the show.